Thanks for the time to talk with you brothers about biblical things, especially with regard to the topic in this seminar, Love and Hate. I love how the the great high vision of the cross that we're drinking in from Michael in the plenary sessions is, is pressed down into our lives as a real, practical, impactful vision of Christ for us to live out. That's my aim, is that this seminar, and each time we've met together and the other seminars that are meeting, my prayer will be that they will help put contours and definition and draw lines and say that the cross of Christ lived out is this way and not that way. And it's this flavor and not that flavor in your relationships, in your decisions, in your identity, in your future, and ultimately to your eternity. Let's pray and ask God for His help as we dig into this session. Father, come now and be our teacher by the Holy Spirit to make much of Christ, to exalt Him, to magnify Him in our hearts, to teach us what He's like, to have Him stand before us clearly as our sacrificial, atoning, penal substitute and our example, our master to follow to be a disciple of, to learn from, to sit under His teaching, and to be transformed by. Make us into His image, even through the foolishness of my teaching and the perfection of Your Word, and through the open-hearted, keen, attentive listening of Your servants, these dear brothers. We ask it in Jesus' great name. Amen. Amen. If you look at the title of my seminar... I want to give you the background of where I have landed on what I'm going to present. Look at the title. It says, From Hate to Love, I'm No Longer Seen as a Failure. From Hate to Love, I'm No Longer Seen as a Failure. I love the subtitle. That's what caught my attention first. I'm No Longer Seen as a Failure. I thrill at the idea of talking to men about the fact that in Christ, because of the gospel, we're no longer seen as failures. We're not defined by our sins. We're not defined by our inadequacies were not defined by our failures. I think that's great news and I want to herald that. But that wasn't what I dwelt on when I got this information for this seminar. I noticed the large print from hate to love or in the original material it was just the word hate and love and I thought, the Bible has a lot to say about hate and love. How does hate and love fit together with this great news that I'm no longer divined by my failures. So my seminar today, this hour together, is my attempt to try to understand what the Bible commands with regard to hate and love and how that's related to my not being a failure in the sight of God. I want to tell you that I found a lot. And this was the... the edge, the frontier of discovery for me. I hope it'll be a frontier of discovery for you. I want to take you into Jesus' teaching specifically on what He commands of us with regard to hate and love. And when we learn what Jesus commands of us with regard to hate and love, we will see how it will inevitably and gloriously result in God having joy in us and us having joy in God. Listen to Luke 14, 25 through 27. You might want to turn there. This is going to be a text I'm going to refer to many, many times in our 
in our 50 minutes together. Luke 14, 25 through 27. It says this, Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Two brief observations before we dig into this injunction from our Lord Jesus to love and hate and how that results in our knowing joy with the Father. Observation number one. Jesus marries or connects certain kind of holy hatred with being cross-bearers. We're to bear the cross and that will mean there will mark our lives a certain kind of holy hatred. That's the first observation. The second is it's not just for those who have some high maturity in the Christian life. It's for everybody who's a disciple. This cross-bearing that includes a certain kind of hate is for everybody who would consider themselves a disciple. Not just for the mature. Two observations that start us out in asking Jesus the question, how would you have us hate and love in such a way that our Assurance of not being failures in your sight. Our assurance of your joy and approval is ours each hour of every day. You know that's Jesus' aim. He says as our master and teacher and savior and sacrifice and God. In John 15, 10 and 11, Jesus instructs us this way. He says, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Oh, we love to hear that. Such good news. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love, these things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. This is the aim of Jesus in calling you to bear your cross and become His disciple. He says, I've got divine, infinite, second person of the Trinity joy, and I want to pour it into you. It's like taking your styrofoam cup and saying, I'm going to fill it up underneath Niagara. Pour it in, Jesus. Blast. The whole cup out of my hand and my whole life is blasted by his joy. There's no way all the joy of the Lord Jesus Christ could fit into my tiny little thimble-like life. But he says, I talk to you this way. I teach you. I'm your master. I'm your discipler. I'm your hero and sacrifice and savior and God. Because I want my joy to be in you so that your joy is full. What I'm suggesting to you is the pathway to that kind of Niagara joy is taking on the cross of Christ in your life every day such that you love the way he loves and hate the way he hates. The pathway to Niagara-like joy is bearing the cross such that you love the way he loves and hate the way he hates. We're going to press in and ask, what does Jesus mean when he calls us to love and hate? And we're going to ask, how does that happen in my life? And we're going to end with two applications. So that's our outline. First, before I start to define love and hate in Jesus' teaching, you might say, I don't think I've ever read a book or heard a sermon on hate before. So why are we studying this? Here's my answer. Two brief answers. One, 
There's a lot in the Bible on hate. There's a lot in the Bible on hate. The Bible has a lot to say about hate. You, you don't have any trouble going to a Christian uh, bookstore and buying mugs with love verses on them. Or crocheted love verses for the wall hanging. But you don't find anybody with Luke 14, 26 on their crocheted wall hangings. Hate your father and mother and hate your children and your brothers and your sisters, even your own life to be my disciple. It just doesn't show up on the mugs. But it's in the Bible, and so are a lot of other commands to hate. So the question has to be, what does it look like? What do you mean, Jesus? What do you want me to know about you and God and reality and myself and and how I should relate to, to what you disapprove of, which is all around me and even inside me? How am I supposed to relate to that in such a way that I'm reflecting your character, glorifying you, and pursuing this Niagara-like joy in my life, which I want and need so badly? And you died to provide for me. First answer, why we're digging into this, it's all over the Bible. Second answer, if we dig into this question, we will know God better and thus know ourselves better. I'm helped here, by the way, John Calvin started out his massive magisterial book, The Institutes of the Christian Religion. He took uh, as his beginning motive for understanding all the reality of systematic theology in that book with this These two opening sentences at the very beginning of his institutes. Calvin says, The knowledge of God and the knowledge of ourselves are bound together by a mutual tie. But we must treat of the former in the first place and then descend to the latter. It is evident that man never attains to a true self-knowledge until he has previously contemplated the face of God and come down after such contemplation to look into himself. Calvin is saying, You don't get to know yourself until you first know God. And when you have known God, you will then know yourself. So in our time, studying what love and hate mean and how they mingle together, we won't just ask what does he mean for that to be like in us. We will see how it occurs in Jesus and we will look right through the Lord Jesus into God the Father and see how it mingles together in him. What does love mean in Jesus' teaching? You say out loud, brothers, raise your hand and say out loud without telling me where you find it, a love command that you can think of. I'd love to hear four or five of you. What's a love command you can think of? Say it out loud. Yeah. Yeah, good. Someone else. That's a great one. Yes, thank you. What's another love command in the Bible? Yes, good. There's more. There's lots of them. Yep. As Christ loved the church. Very good. What else? Yes. Right. Honor and love them. Absolutely. Lots of love commands. Appropriate. I'm not suggesting and don't think for a moment that somehow there needs to be a balance. We're not modernists here. We're not into any kind of rationalism where we have to have an equal balance of hate in our love. That's not what Jesus is saying. And that's not what I'm saying. Here is what I'm saying. Let me be as precise as I can. Here's my thesis of how love and hate mingle together. Hate, in the Christ-like fashion we find it commanded in Scripture, is the necessary echo of divine love in your life. Holy hatred is the necessary echo of divine love in your life. 
Why do I say that? Because if I tell my wife that I love her, but I don't hate what harms her, then my statement of love for her is a myth. If I tell my kids, I love you, but I don't go with holy hatred against what threatens to harm them, then they don't have a reason to trust my love. If I tell the Lord, I love you, but I do not dare even begin to hate what you hate or hate what opposes you, then my love for him is hypocrisy and hollow. I'm afraid that much of American Christian statements of love to God is hollow because it doesn't include biblical hate. It has no necessary echo in the rightful, jealous, just, opposing of all that opposes Christ. Many commands in the Bible tell us what it's like to love the Lord Jesus Christ. But I think it's a necessary element, a necessary echo of that genuine love to also hate what opposes Him. Two helpful teachers have taught me this. Both, in fact, almost everybody I quote in this message has the first name John. Here's another one. John Murray. I like John Murray so much. Uh, Taught at Westminster. Brilliant Scottish theologian. Here's what he says. If there is still sin to any degree in one who is indwelt by the Holy Spirit, there is. Then there is tension, yes, contradiction within the heart of that person. Every Christian, you and me. Indeed, the more sanctified the person is, the more conformed he is to the image of his Savior. The more he must recoil against every lack of conformity to the holiness of God. The deeper his apprehension of the majesty of God, the greater the intensity of his love to God. The more persistent his yearning for the attainment of the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus, the more cautious he will be of the gravity of the sin which remains. And the more poignant will be his detestation of it. That's a great quote from John Murray, helping me realize that there's things inside me I need to hate. There's things inside those people that I love that I need to hate. There's things in the world that with Christ-like holiness I need to hate. We haven't yet learned what that hatred is like. We'll get there in a moment. Another John, I'm quoting, John Piper, in his book, What Jesus Demands of the World. Very helpful. Listen to Piper. He says, Consider what Jesus says in John 5, 29, that in the last day, when the dead are raised, all people will rise, those who have gone done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. This means that there is evil in the world that leads to the final destruction of people we love. How does love feel about the evil? My point is that love hates the evil. We do not hate God's judgment. That is just and wise. But we do hate the evil that leads a person to oppose God and incur His judgment. Now, I hope you're beginning to feel what Christ's command to hate is like. How the cross, when we bear the cross, when we say, we hear preaching on the cross, and we don't just go out saying, i got to hear more preaching on the cross, but we say, I'm going to wear it. I'm going to bear it. It's going to define me. Then I'm going to love all that Christ loves, and I'm going to hate what Christ hates. And that's what will mark my bearing of the cross. The outcome of such a life is standing under the Niagara of God's joy. 
Hate is therefore, as I've said, a necessary echo of genuine divine love in the Christian life. What are the guards on this hatred? What are the handrails, the shoreline on this hatred? What are the channels in which this hatred runs so that it does not run amok and cause all manner of arrogant, proud damage in the world? Thousands of examples could be given where Christians are guilty of unholy hatred. Thousands of examples. I just tumble to my mind right now, but we don't have the time to go through them. You can think of them too. How do we avoid all those horrible examples of unholy, guilty hatred, which we must flee, and the Bible never endorses, but always forbids? Two guidelines. One, this kind of holy hatred is always an expression of God's love. It's intimately connected to, and an echo of God's love. It can never be detached from God's love to be expressed. You can, you'll never express Christ's hatred without it leading to and flowing from Christ's love. This limits hatred to a very, very narrow and specific form of expression. Think about talking to your wife or your your children, or your grandchildren, or your co-workers, or, or even to your enemies. Think about the command to love your enemy. It's also a command, as, as we just heard from Piper, it's also a command to hate what is opposing Christ in him and what causes God's judgment in him. So you might speak very firmly and very directly and very sharply to your enemy on where you disagree with Him, but you speak from a heart of Christ's love for the sake of expressing Christ's love, even though you speak very strong words of holy hatred. Think of any conversation that you might have with someone whom you love deeply, but you have to identify sin or unbelief or wickedness or evil in them. You have to speak in biblical, Christ-like hate toward that sin and toward them as they have embraced that sin, but you speak from love and for love. That's one guardrail. Second guardrail. Hate under the model that Christ shows and commands is always mingled with grief. It's always mingled with grief. Let me show you this. Turn to Mark chapter 3. Jesus is talking to the Pharisees in Mark 3. He's in the synagogue and he's about to heal a man with a withered hand. Do you remember what he asks them? Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. Jesus asked them a question and the Pharisees, teachers of the law, should have said, Oh, Jesus, you are the Lord of the Sabbath. Heal this man. Make life. We know exactly what the Sabbath is for. The Sabbath is to magnify you, Lord Jesus Christ. Do it. Get glory for yourself. We'd love to see you worshipped and magnified. By the way, you heal this man's hand. That's what they should have said. They were silent. And he is angry with holy hatred at their silence. Look what the text says in Mark 3, 5. 
This tells us exactly how to express anger and hatred in a Christ-like way. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. That's how to be angry. That's how to have holy hatred. Jesus looks around the room at the unbelief and sin and evil and wickedness of the Pharisees, and he's angry and grieved. There is riches here, brothers, for how to have holy hatred in your life. When you see unbelief and sin and evil and wickedness in others and in yourself, you say, how this sin in me or in others causes me profound grief because it violates the beauty and the purity and the worth and the glory and the majesty and the joy that's found in God. God is being dishonored by this evil and sin and wickedness in me and in you and in us. That's how Christ responds to sin and evil and wickedness. And it is how you will too as you take on the cross and say, I want to love what Jesus loves and I want to hate what Jesus hates and I want to do it the way He does it. The way He does it is to say it starts from love, it aims at love and it's mingled with grief all the way through. That's the kind of husbands your wives desperately need. It's the kind of daddies your kids desperately need. That's the kind of Boss, your employees need. That's the kind of neighbor all your neighbors need. It's the kind of leaders your churches need. It's the kind of men this world desperately needs. This love and hate mingles together beautifully in Christ. If I were to give you one verse that I would hope any of you would remember from my little seminar here, it would be this one. Hebrews 1, 8 and 9. Hebrews 1. 8 and 9. Listen to the way the writer of Hebrews exalts Jesus Christ. Listen to what he exalts in him. Why he raises up Jesus in high supreme worship in Hebrews 1. Listen to these verses starting in verse 8. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. Listen. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. That's my whole seminar in one verse. That's the whole thing. Savor this, brothers. Jesus loved righteousness and he hated wickedness. Therefore, the joy of God has anointed him like Niagara. The oil of gladness poured out on Jesus because he loved righteousness and hated wickedness. That's what I'm calling you to. It gets more profound and mysterious still. How did God the Father regard me the day before I was saved? He hated me. He wouldn't be God if he didn't hate me. His holiness, his justice, his righteousness looked upon my impurity and sin and he hated me. Psalm 5 verse 4 says he did. Psalm 5 verse 4 says he hates not only sin but sinners. The day before I was saved, he hated me. And 
simultaneously, he loved me from before the foundation of the world. He set his affection on me. He chose me. He called me out of darkness into light because he elect or selected me. He predestined me from before the foundations of the world, Ephesians 1, in order that he might set his love upon me. He sent his son to die in my place. And Romans 5.8 tells me that's how he expressed his love for me. While he hated me. I know we're... We're speaking of which we do not know when we talk about the very inner mind of God the Father. But the Bible is clear. He loved me before the foundation of the world. And when I was yet an unbeliever running in rebellion against him, he hated me, right? And so. So pause with me, brothers, and consider how in the very mind of God, true and holy hatred for me as a sinner sinning mingles with his desire and choice and deliberate act of loving me from before the foundation of the world, which culminated in the sending of his son to die for me. Built into the very heart of God is this ability to love and hate perfectly. To love all that glorifies him and his son, to hate all that opposes him and his son fully and perfectly. So how would such a divine mingling of love and hate ever occur in your life? How could this ever be true for you? You might be hearing me say this and say, you're talking about God, you're talking about mysterious things of God. There's no way that could ever possibly be expected of me. It is expected of you. How could it ever be true in your life? Answer, the new birth. You need a new heart. You need to be remade. You need to be transformed. You need to have your old self killed off and mortified and executed. You need to be brought to life once again. In the new birth. Ezekiel 36 says. God said to us. I will give you a new heart. And a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh. And give you a heart of flesh. You need a brand new heart. You need a heart capable of saying. I love all that Christ loves. And I hate all that Christ hates. And I have his spirit. To help me apply that rightly. In all of my life. Including in my own assessment of myself. Listen to how the Apostle Peter describes this new heart, this new birth, and how it affects what you love. I'm reading from 1 Peter 1, 22 and 23. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love for one another, earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again. You have a new heart. You're born again. And that enables you to love as Christ loves and to hate as Christ hates. That's what happens when you take on this cross that you are to bear as a Christian. All Christians are walking with Jesus bearing the cross. No such thing as a cross-free Christian. All Christians, by definition, are cross-bearers. One of my favorite Puritans is a man named Samuel Rutherford. Here's a guy I'm quoting whose first name isn't John. Samuel Rutherford. The crabby cross of Christ, he says, is the sweetest burden that I ever bore. It is such a burden as wings are to a bird, as sails to a ship, to carry me forward to my harbor. And if you ever read Rutherford or any of the Puritans, you realize that the carrying of the cross was not a hard, dutiful, sorrowful burden, but it was a joy to them. It was how they knew they were walking close and near to Christ. It was how they knew that they were being transformed in what they loved and transformed in what they hated. It was how they knew that this joy, this Niagara joy that Jesus promises was theirs both now and in life to come. 
Before application, one more clarification. We tend in the American church to reduce charges like like Jesus' command to love and to hate, we tend to reduce them down to actions. We men especially like to reduce them down to a list of things we need to do. The Bible doesn't succumb to that. It rarely gives us merely specific actions because there's an intense danger in me saying love and hate in my Christian life is going to look like me doing this and not doing that. What does the Bible do when it gets specific and practical when we begin to think about applying this? Listen to Romans 12.9 as an example. Paul is saying these exact truths to the Romans. At the, near the end of his letter to the Romans, he says very simply, let love be genuine, abhor What is evil? Hold fast to what is good. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. So when Paul wants you to look at your mother and father, your brothers and your sisters, your children, your wife, even yourself, he says, let love be genuine. Mingling hate with love does not make love phony. Mingling Christ-like hate with love makes love genuine. It's the necessary echo for love to be genuine. You say to your wife, you say to your brothers and sisters, your, your members at church, your children, your co-workers, your friends, your enemies, you say to them, the way you know I love you is I'm going to stand like a fierce lion against anything that opposes your good. My hatred is a necessary part of my expressing my love for you. When Paul says, abhor what is evil... He's not merely talking about a certain list of actions or do's and don'ts. He's talking about a heart condition. The word abhor means regard as horrific or horrible. Everything that is evil. This is the capacity to look into another person's life and be horrified if they're committing sin. To be horrified if they're sleeping together. To be horrified if there's been an abortion. To be horrified if you find them lying. To be horrified if they're, if they're gluttonous. Horrified if they're spending money in a way that displeases the Lord. Horrified if they're casual with regard to purity. This is the capacity to be shocked and horrified where horror is appropriate. Evil. Holding fast to what is good. You know this, this verb and command to hold fast is the same one that's used all through the Bible with regard to husbands and wives. It's the idea of clinging and grasping and embracing and holding tight to all that is good. It's an an ancient Greek word that was used of mariners that they were told when their ship was under a storm and falling apart, cling and hold fast to the mast because it was the long wooden pole that would not sink and break. You'll be safe if you hold fast. That's the word used here. Hold fast to the good. Marry the good. Hold it tight like you would a mast in the midst of a storm. That's the way the Bible talks to us when it says, if you you bear your cross, if you're walking with Christ as His disciple and you bear your cross and you want the joy of knowing all your sins and inadequacies and failures are wiped away and God's joy pours down upon, upon you, then abhor what is evil, hate it, hold fast to what is good, love it. Two ways of applying this. There are many, but I thought of two, and our time allows for two, and then I'm going to give you some time to make comments and ask questions. First, how then shall we live embracing Jesus' command to love and hate as He does? First, live in the reality that God cannot hate your sin more than He loves His Son. Live in the reality that God cannot hate your sin 
more than He loves His Son. What this means is that the love God has for His Son, His perfect, obedient, sinless, pure, divine Son, is the ground and basis for His love for His sons. You. God doesn't love you because you're lovable. He doesn't love you because you're lovely. His love makes you lovely. He loves you rooted in His absolute perfect love for His Son and His Son's substitute on your behalf. His Son's imputation of all of His Son's worth upon you. God loves you with the same love with which He loves His Son. That's the ground and the basis of your confidence of being loved by God. You, in your life, your inadequacies, failures, and sins cannot cause God to love you any less because He will not love His Son any less. And your efforts at doing away with those inadequacies and and failures and sins cannot cause God to love you any more because He loves you at His infinite maximum just as He does His Son. Oh, the confidence you ought to have in your reflection, uh, in God's face and in His eyes, as it were, as you read in Scripture these great truths, your reflection in God's face is that His love for you is unstoppable. His love for you is as unstoppable as is His love for Jesus Christ, His only Son. This should cause you, brothers and sisters, there's no sisters in this room, this should cause you, brothers, to put away self-esteem as a false counterfeit for self-worth. What's the difference? Self-esteem is an internal private effort to build up ourselves with myth, falsehoods, statements that are hollow and not true. We are our own referent. It's like, it's like building our own little tower of Babel where we say, look at me and look at what I can do no matter what I'm viewed by, by anyone else. It's this tiny little act of subtle rebellion Self-worth is the idea that you look into someone else's eyes and they are a trustworthy, honest, loving, safe person and you find in your reflection in their eyes a high value where they esteem and assess and value you with a very high worth. supposed to happen in the family very naturally and normally. When the family breaks down, people don't have anyone applying self-worth to them so they go around building their own little towers of Babel in efforts of self-esteem, which never work. The ultimate design of where our self-worth comes from is God saying to us, because I've sent my son for you when you were worth nothing to me. Therefore, I have made you worthy in my sight. Find your worth in me. The world and unbelievers and even, sadly to say, many Christians will give themselves to the endless, hopeless, unsatisfying pursuit of self-esteem when the final answer for who we are is to see ourselves in the the worth and value that God assesses us with. Live in the reality that God cannot hate our sin more than He loves His Son. Second application. Live in the reality that indwelling sin and unbelief remain in us until glory, yet we need not nor dare not be defined by them. Sin and unbelief, temptations and evil 
continues to dwell within every Christian as we are being transformed from one degree of glory to another until our final glorification. But we need not and dare not be defined by those unholy and evil desires. I can't tell you how many homosexual uh, persons, persons battling with homosexual desires have come into my office as a pastor and we've gotten to this point in the discussion about the gospel and I have been able to say to them, you know that what you define as who you are is really just a cluster of very strong desires. It's really just a set of temptations that would lead you to destruction. They lead you to unnatural acts and it leads you to what the Bible says is your ultimate destruction. It leads you to sin. But you need not be defined by those desires. You need not own them. If you identify in wearing the cross, loving what Christ loves and hating what Christ hates, then you need not be defined by and to own to yourself the curse and the label and the identity of that sin. But it doesn't just apply to homosexual temptation. It applies to the temptation every one of you deal with every hour of every day. Praise the Lord because of the gospel. I'm not defined by my temptations. I don't have to be them. I don't have to join together with them and get civil rights to protect them. I'm not defined by my temptations. I just have to get out the Bible like a broadsword and slay them. Repeatedly until I die. It's not a surprise to say to a person who has deep, deep temptations to lie or to use the internet for pornography or to, or to overspend or overeat or to be lazy or to be angry or to give way to sexual impurity. It's not a surprise that the Bible says, stay in the battle against those temptations all the rest of your life, which is, oh, about a vapor. And then you're done. If that's the Christian life, God, come do it in me. Don't let me be defined by my evil and unholy desires. We're in the new Sodom. Will there be ten? Will there be ten whom God will find faithful in the new Sodom? Who love him and stand firm for his gospel and for his name and for his word and for his son? Those who stand firm against evil in the world, no matter if you are misunderstood or not, those who stand firm will be men and women who identify by walking with Christ and putting on the cross of Christ. Loving all that Christ loves, hating all that Christ hates in the way that he does it. And that will be our calling, brothers. You will find then Hebrews 1.8, which was true of Jesus, being true for you. You will find him exalted and you exalted with him for loving righteousness, for hating wickedness, and then the oil of anointing of gladness being poured out upon you. Now, I'm going to stop.